If you have your Bibles, why don't you start making your way to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, that's where we will be this morning. So one of my many heroes, and if you ask Holly, I have way too many heroes, but one of my many heroes is Corey Tenboom. Corey was from the Netherlands, from the city of Harlem. She was raised in a, in a strong Christian home and within the Dutch Reformed Church. And Corey took part in her family's business of watchmaking. She actually became the first woman in the Netherlands to be an officially licensed watchmaker. And though I love watches, Corey is not one of my heroes because she could make a sweet Dutch watch. In 1940, after Germany invaded the Netherlands, the Ten Booms had a decision to make. Keep making watches and mind their own business, namely paying bills, going to church, hanging out with family and friends and just doing life, or break the law by illegally hiding Jews. Risking their own lives for the sake of fellow image bearers facing genocide. For the Ten Booms, it was an easy decision, though it would prove to be quite costly. The Ten Booms joined the Dutch resistance movement, and they did all they could to save Jews. Corey and her sisters, Corey and her sister. Betsy and their house got a little facelift when the Dutch resistance sent an architect to build a secret room that would hold six people. They called this the hiding place. If you've never read, if you've never read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, it's a must read. And if you love audiobooks, it's, it's free on Hoopla. After they were all cat captured by the Gestapo, Corey's dad, Casper, he died first while in solitary confinement, while Corey and her sister, Betsy, were eventually taken to Ravenbrook, a German concentration camp where Betsy was also killed. Corey was the lone survivor who was able to tell their story. All in all, the Ten Booms saved around 800 Jews. Though what they were doing was illegal, because they feared God, they had no other choice. Civil disobedience for them as Christians was what fearing God looked like in Harlem during the Holocaust. What would you have done? How, how ought Christians to act, or, or to act when evil is in power? How ought the Christian act, period? Early on, as the Ten Booms were hiding Jews, they had one Jewish mom with her newborn baby. They needed to find a safe place for them. When one day, the, the local pastor of the Dutch Reformed Church in town walked into their watch shop. He needed something fixed. Corey thought, oh, the Lord has answered my prayers. He brought this pastor here to take away this mom and baby. Praise you, Jesus. But after Corey tried to convince him to take them, even hold, holding the little baby out in front of him, 
this reformed pastor said, we could lose our lives for that Jewish child. And Corey, this is illegal. Corey's dad, Casper, appeared out of nowhere and told this pastor, you say we could lose our lives for this child? That would be the greatest honor for me and my family. How should we act when evil is in power? And what if this evil even threatens the purposes of God? In our passage this morning from Exodus 1, through two Jewish women, two true heroes in the story of Israel, we are going to see just that. That fearing God is the right play, even when the options are life and death. So Exodus chapter 1, if you're not already there, we'll begin this morning in verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Many of us men were at the men's retreat last, re- last week. Ooh, right? Um, but if anyone did not hear Mark's sermon from Exodus 1, verses 1 to 7 last week, you, you need to go back and listen. He, he sets up the, an entire context to the book of Exodus. The book that we're going to be in until Easter. Exodus is a continuation from all that has transpired with God's people in Genesis. Look at verse 8. This is where we start this morning. A new king. So here there's a new pharaoh in town. And we see right off the bat to whom Joseph meant nothing. Joseph... Is Jacob's son, and if you recall from Genesis, had been the prime minister in Egypt. Through his interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, he saved not only Egypt from drought, but he saved his people Israel as well. Through Joseph, God's promises remained alive. Up until this point, Egypt has been blessing God's people. And it has only brought them blessings themselves. I mean, that's literally written into the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. That's Genesis 12, 3. But this new king is not down with these circumcised immigrants. And he wants to make Egypt great again. But in cursing Israel, he's going to find himself declaring war against Israel's God, Yahweh. Before we move on, that word meant, that word meant, the Hebrew kutal, in the middle of verse eight, in the middle of verse eight, to whom Joseph meant nothing, would bring to mind for Joseph's, or Moses's original listeners, another place that that word is used just a few verses back. If you remember the last chapter of Genesis, After Jacob passes away, after Israel passes away, Joseph's brothers are getting a little nervous. Like, oh man, what is Joey going to do now? He's going to get his revenge on us when Pops passes. And so they try to manipulate their brother again so that they don't, so that he doesn't kill them. Do you remember what Joseph says? 
It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It's Genesis 50, 20. He, he says, as for y'all, y'all meant evil against me. It's the same word. But God meant it for good. The, the purposes of God, first proclaimed in the garden, where the seed of Eve is going to crush the serpent's head. And as that story and in God's kingdom has progressed through each of the covenants from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, we've seen the purposes of God, this drama of redemption unfold in ways that nobody could have imagined. And now his people who have grown complacent in their prosperity, even forgetting their God who brought them here. Again, listen to Mark's sermon last week find themselves increasing in number, but outside of the promised land. And so this new king to whom Joseph meant nothing is the context where we find the God who uses the most unlikely circumstances to bring about his good purposes, to fulfill his sovereign promises. We're about to see the the sovereign providence of God at work all throughout the book of Exodus. The God who keeps his promises. The evil that, that Pharaoh meant for Israel, we're about to see in this sermon series that God intends for good to fulfill his promises. Look at verse 9. Look. The king said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. Israel is growing into a mighty nation. And this Pharaoh is telling his people that that we cannot trust these immigrants anymore. Anyone notice the serpent language? We must deal shrewdly with them. Moses, the the author of Genesis and Exodus, is setting up this king, Pharaoh, whom Egypt considered divine, as an anti-god, a serpent-like figure. And as we'll see as this book unfolds, the Exodus event defines the name of Yahweh. It's the most referenced event in the entire Bible, Old Testament and New. Exodus is a big deal because like I just said, the Exodus event defines the name of Yahweh. This means his character, his purpose, who he is, what he's about, what he's on mission to do is all revealed in this book. Old Testament scholar Tim Mackey says this about Exodus, quote, Yahweh is on a mission to first reveal his name and his character and his purpose to his chosen people he selected and then through them reveal his name and reputation to all the nations. But before God is going to do that, this anti-God Pharaoh makes the first move. Verses 11 through 14 show us Pharaoh's plan A. And what's that? Slavery. 
Verse 11, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And and the more the Israelites continue to grow, the more ticked off Egypt is becoming. Verses 12 through 14, both Israel's labor and Egypt's anger are intensifying, working them ruthlessly making their lives bitter through this worst kind of labor, brick and mortar. Just so we have some context as to what Israel's going through, brick making. This is one of the, the, the worst jobs in an operation of awful, awful jobs in the ancient Near East. Heat unimaginable, dirty, literally backbreaking. Uh, imagine being covered in soot and, and, and charcoal from the fire that needs constant stoking. These kilns were the worst places to be, and this is where Israel spent most of their days, their years, for some of them their lives, packing wet clay into straw, packing wet clay and straw into little molds and forming bricks and their children carrying the bricks on their heads out to the sun the scorching sun decades upon decades with no relief in sight could you imagine i mean i i complain when it's 90 outside imagine brick making in egypt in the summer with no chiropractor no paid time off And yet, what does God do to Pharaoh's plan? He multiplies the people of God. Somehow that they're finding the energy to make babies, and making babies they are, lots of them. So so how does Pharaoh respond? Well, time for plan B, infanticide. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shifra and Pua, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby's a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Shifra and Pua. After this story, you're going to wonder why there are no kids at RP named Shifra and Pua. I'm serious. I told Holly if we ever have another kid, which I don't think we will, but if we did and we had a daughter, we're naming her Pua. (laughs) Their Hebrew names mean beautiful and sparkle. I know our oldest, Eden, would love that name. Her favorite color right now is sparkly rainbow. (laughs) But they, beautiful and sparkle, Shifra and Pua, are presented with quite the situation right? Talk about being on the hot seat, or rather the hot delivery stool. They're given a command. These are orders from the king himself. These orders aren't optional. They, they, they must be obeyed. If, if they want to have right standing with the state, and, and what's their royal law? Simple, to kill all Hebrew baby boys. I mean, put yourself 
in their predicament for a moment. And life's been hard for the Israelites. They, they've been in bondage now to Egypt. These women are Jewish and their job is midwifery. They, they've obviously been pretty busy lately with the explosion of Hebrew children and no epidurals. But now, to obey the laws of this land, to be good citizens of Egypt, they are to kill their own people. Hebrew baby boys. Instead of cutting their umbilical cords and watching the, the joy on mama's face as they hand her her precious baby boy, they're commanded to cut their throats. And if they do, their lives are safe. They have peace with the king, which would most certainly entail riches and comfort. If they break the law, however, who knows where they may end up. Death would certainly be an option. I mean, it's easy from our perspective to say, yeah, of course, do what's right. God's about to move. But they don't know that. They don't have that vantage point. Do you know how many Christians in the early church denied Christ in Rome? Because their options were life and death. It's all just head ethics until you're presented with that option. So what do they do? Verse 17, drum roll. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. They let the boys live. Hallelujah. They feared God. That was their driving motivation for Shifra and Pua to, to, to do what was right. We'll, we'll come back to this idea of fearing God, but let's finish this story out. Look at verse 18. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Verse 19. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. <laughs> pretty witty. <laughs> now I don't have time to get into the ethics here of Shifra and Pua. We spent time in our GC hashing this out. I recommend you do likewise. Are they lying? Is it okay to lie in, in a situation like this? Is this sin? Maybe this will be a future theology on the ground topic. Christian ethics. We'll see. But for our purposes today, that, that rabbit trail is not the point Moses is trying to make. These boss ladies, <laughs> Shipra and Pua, feared God. They, they, they answered to Pharaoh and verse 20 says, So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. Plan B failed. Sorry, Pharaoh. And it, it, it's funny in this story, the, the, the Pharaohs are never named. But you know who is named? Shifra and Pua. They will go down in history as the chicks who saved Israel. 
Think about generations and generations of young men who can credit their existence to these women and their fear for God. Now, is this story about God's providence and his sovereignty over all things? That his plans can't be thwarted? I think it is. And praise God for his divine sovereignty. But this is also the story about how God uses means to accomplish his purposes. Here it's two midwives to to bring about the rescue of his people. Human responsibility. These are not mutually exclusive God's sovereign providence and and, and human responsibility are both true. And we need to have a, a category in our minds for them because they're both clearly in the Bible. You may have already connected the dots, but in a similar story, God uses some magi from the east who likewise feared God so much so that they disobey their authorities and the state. If you remember when Jesus was born, Herod was in charge. And when he discovers the the Magi have come all the way to Bethlehem to worship a new king, Herod tells them that that when you find this king, let me know. I want to come worship him too. Well, the Magi don't listen to him. And when Herod finds out about it, he, like Pharaoh, attempts to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem because there's only room for one king. Well, one little boy escaped through a dream Mary's husband, Joseph, received. Joseph took Mary and the little boy, Jesus, to go hide out in where? Egypt. God uses means to accomplish his purposes because when Jesus grows up, he becomes, as we will see in Exodus, what Israel never lives up to, God's faithful son. He lived his life fearing God. But in the end, for him, he's killed on a Roman cross because of what this holy God demands, and, and that's justice. Justice for what? That the, the penalty of sin is death. And from Adam in the garden to us in Parker, we have all sinned and will face this holy God on judgment day. That's something to fear. But that's also why Jesus came. He, he came for sinners. Unlike us, Jesus never sinned, and yet he gave himself up to the evil powers at hand for you and for me. What they meant for evil, crucify him. God meant for good, eternal life for those who believe. Now back to the story How does the story in our passage end this morning? Since we're on on chapter one of a 40 chapter book, it's going to leave with a cliffhanger. (laughs) 
Pharaoh has a plan C up his sleeve. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to his people, not trusting any more Jews with his plans. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. We'll see how this works out for Pharaoh next week. But right now, I want to spend a little bit of time in application. In light of this story, how shall we then live? Look at verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So not only does God preserve their life, lives, preserves the, the Jewish ethnicity, not only does he preserve his promises from the, the Garden of Eden to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he blesses these midwives with their own families. Why? Because they feared God. Now it's 2022. Are we really still supposed to fear God? This is in the Old Testament. I mean, this sounds so archaic, pre-enlightenment, oppressive. Haven't we evolved in our thinking Proverbs 1 says the the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. And in light of Exodus 1 and the Hebrew midwives, matter of fact, in light of the whole canon of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, fearing the Lord is our application. It is still the answer in 2022, church. Fearing the Lord. Barnabas Piper's definition for fearing God is simply living as if God is real. I love that. Living as if God is real. My favorite book on the fear of God is by Michael Horton, and it's called Recovering Our Sanity. Recovering Our Sanity. He makes the case that the fear of God is sanity. That the fear of God is taking God seriously. And that is living with sanity. He goes on to argue that fearing God is not only sanity, but it also sanitizes. God made us for himself. So fearing him, living in light of his reality, ultimate reality, brings us health, vitality, and joy. That it's actually for our good and his glory. To not take God seriously, namely living without the fear of God, well, that's insane. Insanity. Living out of step with ultimate reality. Horton goes on to say, quote, fear really is worship. We fear what we believe is ultimate what we think has the last word over our lives. We live in a world of insanity, right? I mean, who takes God seriously? But hold up before you just start thinking about the 
sexual revolution and your atheist friends. I'm, I'm, I'm mainly talking about us in the church. Like, like, do you take God seriously? This has been my conviction all week in this text. Can our lives be described by the fear of the Lord? Do you take God seriously? I want you to seriously ask yourself that question. Be honest with yourself. Do you take God seriously? Think about what our lives would look like if we did. Like, for instance, and I'll just name a few things here. If we truly believed that by the Spirit you were actually united to Christ, that you had access to the throne of grace, the privilege to call God Father, and that you depend on Him for every breath you breathe, surely that would affect your prayer life, right? Or or if we believe that, that we will actually sit at the judgment seat of Christ and that he sees everything, surely that would inform what we look at, right? Or if we believe that we will give an account for every idle word we speak, then surely we would guard what comes out of our mouths, right? If we believe that God is truly most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, then wouldn't our devotion to Christ be the first thing on our to-do list? What if we actually believed what God says about eternity apart from Christ? We certainly wouldn't go another year without telling our neighbors, coworkers, friends, and families about the gospel, certainly the fear of man would not outweigh the reality of hell, right? And you get the point, and we could go on and on and on. But, but what do you fear most? Is it God? Or, or is it something else? Maybe it's the death of your spouse, or not finding a spouse. It's your kids and their health and career, their salvation. Maybe it's your job, your comfort, or or, or the fear of man. You're a people pleaser. You just want to be liked. Or maybe like many in the church right now, it's the secularization of America. That's your greatest fear. Evil forces coming to take away our Christian liberties. I mean, there's a chance I think a decent chance in our lifetime that it could become really hard to be a Christian. Where civil disobedience becomes our only play. We're not there yet, but but what happens when we do get there? What about when it becomes a matter of life and death? Like it was for Shifra and Pua. Like it is for many of our brothers and sisters around the globe. Like it was for Corey Tenboom and her family. We fear what we believe is ultimate. What do you fear? Because fearing God, taking him seriously, will drive away all other fears. It does. 
New Testament scholar Lynn Coick, she writes, believers have a purpose, divinely given and divinely empowered. Often the church in this fear-mongering world that we live in have lost our purpose. We look as insane as the rest of the world, and that's just facts. Our, our purpose is to recover our sanity, church. To take God seriously. Like, like could you imagine what this would look like in your relationships? In your evangelism, in in, in our giving, in our care for for the poor and the oppressed, in our devotion to Christ. To take God seriously, we may even seek first the kingdom of God instead of trying to build our own kingdoms. Just imagine for a moment, RP, if as a church we truly feared God. what, What would that mean for the city of Parker? Not simply using God as a supporting actor in our own stories, but to be able to play our part in his grand redemptive story. Sign me up for that, right? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your... for your grace, God. Thank you that because of the gospel, the good news that Christ accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves, we we are able to fear you, God. We are able to fear not just the idea of you, not just Elohim, but, but Yahweh. Lord, we ask that you would do a work in this church, God. I think we all can feel the, the gap between what we believe, what we know, and the reality of our lives. But in the new covenant, you have given us your spirit. In us dwells the Spirit of God who helps us bridge the gap from what we know to be true to our actual lives and how we live. Lord, we pray that you would bridge the gap for us, God, that we would be a church that truly fears you. Lord, help us even as we hear this word, even as we see the fear of God in Shifra and Pua. Lord, show us, help us to leave here. Maybe seeing an area in our lives, God, that, that, that we fear more than you. And Lord, help us, help us to turn to you. Help us to fear you. Help us to take you seriously, God, and, and recover our sanity. We ask that you would do these things In the name of Jesus, amen.